The Honorable Chief Justice and Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of North Carolina. Oh, yes, oh, yes, oh, yes. The Supreme Court of North Carolina has resumed sitting for the dispatch of business. God save the state and this honorable court. Good afternoon. The next case is Bishop versus Bishop. I'll note uh, that Justice Berger is recused in this case. Uh, we'll hear from the appellant. Thank you, Chief Justice Newby. My name is Jonathan McGurk. Uh, may it please the court, I'm here for the appellant John Bishop. Uh, there are three points I want to cover in the argument today under the headings. Uh, briefly, 100% maximum, proportionality by income shares, and methodology, also known as show me the math. So this case requires us to apply a statute, which I'm sharing here, and I'll just read the first sentence. It's GS 50-13.4C. Uh, Payments ordered for the support of a minor child shall be in such amount as to meet the reasonable needs of the child for health, education, and maintenance, having due regard to the estate's earnings, conditions, a custom standard of living of the child, and the parties the child care and homemaker contributions of each party and other facts of the particular case. Now, to summarize, basically what that statute says is a child support award must be sufficient to meet, that's a key word, the child's reasonable needs, that's a key word, in consideration of some factors. I'm looking at these fact, these uh, keywords in, in turn, or specifically, first I wanna look at reasonable needs, what that means. Uh, the trial court has the discretion to determine what the child's reasonable needs are. And uh, as the court knows from the briefs, this is a so-called off the guidelines case. In an off the guidelines case, reasonable needs could include just about anything. Appellate review of the trial court's determination of reasonable needs is, bounded only by the uh, abusive discretion standard. So fine. Um, one thing that we covered in the briefs is the distinction between reasonable needs. And in such cases, uh, we mentioned Williams, Bethia Smith, and some others. There's a distinction between reasonable needs and necessaries or the bare necessities, that sort of thing. We are not arguing about whether this case covers the bare necessities or reasonable needs. Um, but this is the point where the Court of Appeals opinion goes off the rails. And I'll just read, this is page eight of the slip of opinion, page 819 of the Southeast Second. The Court of Appeals says, <clears throat> Father, which is John Bishop, Father's argument overlooks the trial court's determination that the child's needs are greater than the expenses stated on mother's financial affidavit. That is just wrong. And the... That's not what we argued at all. What the record actually says is, on page 153A of the record, paragraph of uh, finding of fact, paragraph 23, the trial court says, the court, the trial court has determined the child's total reasonable needs. We're not talking about financial affidavit or anything else. The, the child court has determined the child's total reasonable needs between the parties to be $7,926.23 per month. Out of the child's reasonable needs, the father incurs needs of $5,431.18 per month. Mother incurs needs of $2,495.05 per month. So that's those two numbers together are the total that we're looking at. The total reasonable needs are $7,926.23 a month. Whether the child's needs are greater than the expenses on mother's financial affidavit is completely irrelevant. Now, what do we mean by the word meet? The award, award of child support shall be in such amount as to meet the child's reasonable needs. This can mean only that at most, maximally. Let's back up a second to make sure I'm yes, following here. When you say that the trial court statements about uh, exceeding what's shown on the affidavit is irrelevant. Uh, you're not contending, are you, that the trial court would have been prohibited from finding 
an amount of need greater than uh, what is reflected in the order, are you? The, the trial court, theoretically, the trial court could have found an amount greater than 7,900, whatever. So assuming, that, that there was, assuming that there was evidence in the record to support it and that kind of thing. Yes, correct. That's entirely counterfactual because what the trial court did find was the total reasonable needs were 7,900, et cetera. So that, that's the number that we're working with. That's, that's law of the case, and we're not even arguing about that. Um, but what, when I say that what the statute says that the amount of support can at most meet the needs, that can only be equivalent to at the most 100% of the total reasonable needs. So that that would be the award could, the calculation of the award could only go up to the amount of the total reasonable needs. I don't know what we're even debating about there. So am I hearing you to say, Council, that in your estimation in the statute, the term meet means the maximum amount and not the minimum amount? Well, it couldn't be the minimum amount, Your Honor, because uh, then there would be nowhere to no way to tell what the what the ceiling would be at that point. It can't be more than a hundred percent. If the court says this is these this is exactly what the child needs, we've determined based on all of the evidence this is what the child needs. Then I don't know what else you can say. The, and these are the reasonable needs. I don't know how you can say anything above that is reasonable at any anymore. Reasonable well, means. I'm sorry, you, you finish and then I'll go. Well, I was going to say, by, and I argued in the brief, by definition, if you've already determined what's reasonable, anything above that is by definition no longer reasonable. You've exceeded what's reasonable or therefore it's unreasonable. And that's not what the statute says. The statute says reasonable needs, which we've already determined. Yeah, I was looking more at the term meet, not reasonable needs, in terms of con construing the term meet. And you said that would be the maximum amount and I was just wondering how you would explain why the term meet could not conversely be the minimum amount if meet means having the amount to be determined in some fashion and that you would say that that could be the most that it could be instead of the minimum that it must be. Well, I guess what I'm saying is it, it would be exactly that amount, assuming that the, the parents are able to pay you know, there might be some allowance have to be made for the fact of inability to pay. That's not an issue in this case, but the, but it, the amount is exactly the, the amount of reasonable needs to be determined. It's minimal and maximal meeting right at that number. So that so it has to be exactly that amount to be meet in terms of the statutory construction compliance. Yes, yes, Your Honor. That's what I'm. That would be what I would be arguing. Thank you. I've shared a document here. Um, so these are the undisputed facts in the case. Uh, the parties' incomes are undisputed. Uh, the mother and father share 50-50 custody of the child, so there's no question about a proportionality with relation to the time they have with the child. Uh, reasonable monthly needs are already covered, and the, the, the amount that each person has to already incurs for the time uh, that the child is with them and then the final amount is the child support award. I mean, I can't, I'm not, I'm, I'm disputing the amount of the uh, award, but that is what the court found. The child support award is $3,289 per month. Uh, father pays to the mother. Um, and what we're saying is that this amount is equivalent to 110% of the child's total reasonable needs. And I've uh, shared a document here, I hope, that is the, um, make sure I've done that correctly. Yes, uh, that shows how we how we come up to 110%. So 5,413 is the amount that the father already pays for the time the child is in his care. Uh, 3289 is the child support award, and adding those together, you get 8702. 8702 divided by the total reasonable needs of 7900 gives you 1.1097 or 110%. So he's overpaying by uh, about $800 a month. 
over and above the 100% of the reasonable needs. Uh, I, I somewhat facetiously called this in the brief, re, the, this regime would be reasonable needs plus because we've gone beyond reasonable needs. We've, we've decided we can add on to reasonable needs and, and whatever, I don't know what, what you'd call that super reasonable needs or something or reasonable needs plus. To the extent that we have departed now from an adjudication of actual facts and figures, we have entered into a realm of unreviewable arbitrariness, and that's the danger that we're asking this court to address. Now, I wanted to go back and talk a minute about the factors in the statute. Um, the factors, it says, having due regard to the state's earnings condition, the customer standard of living, child care, uh, and, and other facts, uh, particular to the case. Um, how these factors come into play, it's important to remember that these factors come into play twice in the determination of child support. First, the factors come into play at the determination of the child's reasonable needs. So we know we know what the reasonable needs are because that's already been determined, 7,900, et cetera. Uh, and that's what the distinction is between reasonable needs and bare necessities. In other words, the child may have, you can determine based on, uh, say, financial affidavits what the bare necessities are, but due to the particular facts of the case, there may be other factors that make some other reasonable needs reasonable. But second, the factors also come in on the back end after you've determined what the reasonable needs are. The court has to uh, make a determination of the apportionment of the parent's responsibility for the obligation to pay the child's reasonable needs. And this is the what I call the question of proportionality. Um, and with reference to the guidelines, this case was actually under the 2015 guidelines, but I've tried to share here. Um, this is a little bit small, but at the bottom of page two, it talks about the public policy of North Carolina. This is this is specifically for the guidelines, but the guidelines inform the way we calculate child support under the, under the last heading assumptions and expenses. It says North Carolina's child support guidelines are based on the income shares model. The income shares model is based on the concept that child support is a shared parental obligation. And that's what we're working with. Um, that that both, in other words, the contention is that under the North Carolina model, both parents are supposed to be sharing some proportion of the child support. And in fact, in this case, the mother's child support share uh, is less than zero. She incurs $2,495 a month uh, already for what when the child is there, but she gets a bonus of $793 a month by the payment of the child support. So she's more than compensated for the amount she's already spending for the child support. Um, now, we've conceded in the briefs, even under the income shares model, if you could come up with certain facts under the factors, that the award of child support could theoretically be as much as 100% of the reasonable needs. That's that's not a problem for us. Um, even if you did that, the maximum award would be $24.95 a month. In other words, if you 100% completely reimbursed the mother for the amount she spent for the child while the child was in her care under the reasonable needs, that would still be less than what the trial court ordered in this case. Uh, in order to be consistent with the income shares model, if 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 we were to go to that extent, the trial court would still have to come up, I would say, with some compelling reason, <clears throat> excuse me, some compelling justification for the extreme disproportionality varying off from the basic uh, income shares model to say that dad had to pay 100% of the child support obligation. But even under that scenario, we've already gone less than what the child's, the, the, less than the trial court ordered. Um, can, I, can I ask you a question about um, what you, and maybe this is where you were just about to go, so I apologize if I've jumped the gun somehow, but um, 
I was trying to understand ultimately what your contention is regard given the uncontested facts that you put up on the screen for us and you also have those in your brief where you add the uncontested facts about what the trial court um, how the trial court allocated responsibility for un unreimbursed medical expenses but given what you say are the uncontested facts ultimately what is it you believe the trial court should have ordered as child support here and uh, on page 35 of your brief you cite to I, it looks like another exhibit where you say father's responsibility to meet the remaining reasonable needs of the minor child should be $1,147. Um, and, and I guess my question is, do we have in the record what the previous reasonable needs calculation was and how child support was calculated? Because it just, I'm, I'm having a tr trouble reconciling the findings of fact in this order that the party's incomes and particularly the father's assets and incomes increased and the reasonable needs of the child increased, but yet your contention is he should pay less in child support. We, so those were, those were actually, thank you, Justice Earls. Those were actually contested. You actually asked several questions there and I'll Sorry. try to address those in some kind of order. Those were those were contested facts. It's not it's not true that none of the facts were contested uh, or disputed on the appeal. So two facts were were disputed. One is uh, there is no finding in the two. This is a, there was a 2012 order in the 2018 order. The 2018 order is on appeal. The 2018 the 2012 order never finds what the child's reasonable needs are. You can look beginning to end, and that's never in there. The 2018 order declares that the child's in reasonable needs increased, but I don't know how you could determine that because there's no determination of what it was before as compared to what it was in 2018. But let's just assume that they, that's true. I don't, I don't care. It doesn't matter. I'm not arguing whether there was a substantial change in circumstances. We do dispute in some detail, I think in the reply brief, I'm not, I'm not sure. I don't remember now and I apologize. But we do dispute in some detail the contention that father's income increased. That's demonstrably false. The uh, there is no again in the 2012 order there is no actual finding of what father's income is in the 2012 order. There's no actual finding of what father's income was in 2012 in the 2018 order either. All it says is it was at least thirty thousand dollars. I I went through a calculation. I believe in the reply brief. To show that fathers, if you do the math on it, uh, reverse engineer the math on it, it would appear that father's income in 2012 was approximately $60,000 a month. I don't, I don't know what the number was. There's no finding about that. The finding in the 2008, there is a finding in the 2018 order that father's income was about $44,000, $45,000 a month. So that is actually a decrease, not an increase. Again, it doesn't matter. Uh, we don't need to know that in order to determine how how the child support order is incorrect, um, and that but that does lead to uh, my final my final category, which was the methodology. I've complained at some length in the brief about the the uh, actual uh, the, the absence of a methodology in these orders. Um, the the in, the income shares is not correct. And I will answer your ultimate question too at the end there. Um, this is this is there is a proportionality of 17% and 83% for dividing the unreimbursed medicals. It doesn't say where that number came from, where that division came from. Presumably it has something to do with the trial court's understanding of income shares. I don't know. It doesn't say that. Um, but the correct calculation of the party's income shares. Is 14.4% fourteen, 4, 14 for mother and 18.56% for father. I hope that's showing up on the um, share. Share. Uh, there we go. The share. Um, this is, and, and Appellee agrees with this. This is actually an Appellee's brief at page 83, uh, page 23. Uh, th those are the correct percentages. Um, and, uh, 
this is this is the problem. I don't know how we can engage in this enterprise uh, if we do not consistent with due process. That is, if we do not have a clear explanation of the math and the methodology and the numbers and where they're coming from. And I think that was the essence of uh, your question, Justice Earls. Uh, the um, what what I said in the reply brief was. What we have here is what the contention is that we can have the parties present detailed financial affidavits. They present detailed evidence about the facts and figures. The court scrutinizes all of those facts and figures and makes specific findings of fact about all those facts and figures, and then chucks all that stuff out the window and just picks a number out of the air. That's really what we're talking about here if we're not bound to some methodology. And and that's that's the part that we're objecting to. We can't we can't do that. There has to be some methodology and it has to be shown. I have an appreciation for your position, Mr. McGirt, but uh, in light of the challenge that your position faces, which is firstly that the trial court does have discretion, and secondly that when you talk about methodology, this is a figure to be determined that is off the guidelines, uh, as you readily admitted in your opening statement, how is it that this court would reconcile this being an off the guidelines case and the trial court having discretion to determine what's in the best interest of the child, not necessarily as the Court of Appeals majority says, what the father's ability is to pay? How do we determine all of that with those factors? Right. Thank you, Justice Morgan. Uh, and, and I want us not to get confused here about um, the trial court's discretion. Again, um, it can't just be any old number because that would be completely unreviewable and completely in, uh, that would remove the both parents' ability to defend anything that's going on in the court if you don't know what, what the methodology is. Again, there's no methodology in the order. That's one of the things that I would hope whatever the court's opinion is about this case, that the court says the court, the trial courts must include a specific determination of the methodology they followed. I have no idea what the trial court did to come up with its calculation. The, the document I'm going to try to share here is the, uh, it, it finally, in answer to Justice Earl's ultimate question, and that is the calculation of what do I what do I think it should be? This is how I would this is how I think it should be figured in con, in consideration of proportionality of income, income shares model, and all of those things. So the total reasonable needs, seventy nine of twenty six, times uh, father's share of the of income share is eighty eighty five point six percent. That would be seven thousand six thousand seven hundred eighty four dollars. Subtract from that the amount that father already pays uh, while the child's in his care, $5,400, and that leads you to an ultimate award of $1,353.67. That would be consistent with the way the guidelines work, but this is not a guidelines case, but it would at least approximate the income shares model. And down here at the bottom, I've got a sanity check to show how that works, that mom's the share at mom's house is $24.95 minus the child support award would leave uh, $1,141.38. That would be mom's proportion of how much should be according to her income share. And that is 14.4%. Uh, so that, that shows that, that actually comes out to be exactly right in accordance with their income shares. Now, if uh, the trial court for some reason thought that that was still unfair, um, the trial court could alter that to some extent, but the maximum it could get to would be twenty four ninety five. That that would be yes, twenty four ninety five. That would be the maximum that the trial court could ever get to, because that would totally reimburse uh, mother for everything that was incurred while she was in uh, the child was in mother's care. If we accept your invitation to uh, put in an opinion in your favor, presumably, that there would be some methodology employed by the trial court in an off-the-guidelines case, would we be imposing upon the trial court's discretion? I don't, I, I think, I think it would be possible for the court to say this, Your Honor, that 
some methodology must appear in the order. That's all I'm asking. I'm not saying this methodology necessarily, but some rational methodology must appear in the order. Uh, I've been, the, the struggle on this appeal, part of the struggle on this appeal has been not being able to not it's I think I said it's like shadow boxing with a ghost because I have no idea what the trial court was trying to do. I've got facts and figures on one side and then an award that's completely untethered to the facts and figures. I don't know. I don't know how this how you ended up over here with what you started with over there. It doesn't that's the problem. So that, those are the I do want I do want the court to to deal with that to say some methodology must appear. I, I prefer this methodology. But it doesn't have to be this, and I suppose the court could say this is one possible way to do it or some other way. Uh, I do, but I also do want the court to address that the that meat means 100%, no more than 100%. And I do want the court to address the question of uh, proportionality that both parents have to have a share. It can't be the, the case that mother's share is less than zero. That's that's making dad pay twice council did you want to reserve any rebuttal time thank you your honor i will i will gladly reserve the rest of my time thank you council we'll hear from the appellee uh thank you your honors i'm mike carroll uh from wake county i represent the appellee sarah bishop uh, i'm an old guy and i'm not very cultured so you got to take my cultural means and themes in my cases where i get them so 41 years ago this month, in fact, Talking Heads released a video and a single for arguably their most favorite famous song, Once in a Lifetime. And in Once in a Lifetime, in the video, a very wiry, bespeckled, sweating David Byrne in the first verse employs the listener to say, you may find yourself with a beautiful house and you may find yourself with a beautiful wife and you may find yourself behind the wheel of a large automobile how did I get here? And I believe Byrne summarized both parties' positions in this litigation. Uh, John Bishop will stipulate he's got a beautiful wife, he's got two beautiful houses, two beautiful large automobiles, a beautiful investment account, et cetera, et cetera, was ordered after paying the amount of, and I'm going to round numbers up and down, I'm not trying to confuse anybody, hopefully to simplify stuff. He was ordered in 2012 to pay $2,100 a month. Five years later, upon a hearing where uh, the evidence may or may not be in dispute about whether his income went up or not, but there's no dispute about the needs going up, um, he was ordered to pay an additional $100 a month. And boy, he has just been befuddled by that ever since, all the way to now we are arguing this case before the Supreme Court. Now, how did my client and I get here? I mean, I know procedurally how we got here because at the time, um, Judge Berger dissented, and with all due respect, I didn't know to recuse him. I was hoping he would be here, maybe that we could, you know, mix it up a little bit. Maybe one of you all want to step in the Justice Berger role and mix it up on, on, on your behalf. But, um, but the fact of the matter is, is that when we were trying this case in Wake County District Court 2018, my client and I didn't start saying, you know, four years later, we're going to be in front of the Supreme Court arguing about the child support case. And the the primary reason why we didn't consider that we'd be arguing about the child support case, and this goes to my first point, which is that historically, this court has given wide discretion to trial courts in setting child support boards. If you look at pages 11 and 12 of my brief on the standard of review, these are all quotes from Supreme Court cases. Wide discretionary powers in domestic cases, substantial deference to, to trial court determinations, clear abuses of discretion, manifest decisions manifestly unsupported by reason. That's a really tall standard for the other side to have to meet to argue that this award is wrong. So, so one of the things that they do, which is clever, but ultimately fails, is they try to make this some kind of statutory interpretation case and, case and says, well, this is about um, the term meat and what does meat uh, mean? And uh, my share button's not up right now, but I'm going to read, and maybe Mr. Wood will get it up while we're speaking, but, uh, but if he doesn't, that's fine. I filed a memorandum of supplemental authority with the court over the weekend, and 
I attached the definition from Merriam-Webster of the word meat. And so when you consider the word meat, the word meat has a variety of definitions. Okay, uh, I just got my, let me see if I can do this real quick. This is guy with flip phone attempts to high technology before the highest court in the state. Okay, so Okay, hopefully you all can see that. So this is the definition of the word meat from Merriam-Webster, okay? And I wanted to point out to you a couple things. Uh, actually, one thing, okay? If you go down to definition number four, there's a definition of the word meat which says to conform to especially with exactitude and precision. That's the McGirt definition. McGirt's like, you got to nail it right on that number. If you don't nail it right on that number, it's erroneous. Um, but if you go farther down into the definition, if you look at definition number seven, the word meat is also defined as, quote, to provide for, okay? And that is the definition of meat, which has informed this court's jurisprudence on child support matters for at least 60, 70 years. The Williams case, which both sides cite in their briefs, was a case when a guy was a surgeon and, um, uh, I'm gonna stop sharing. A guy was a surgeon, he was complaining about the amount of money he had to pay for child support. We didn't have an intermediate court of appeals at the time and went to the Supreme Court. And, and Williams is one of the cases where the, this court said, look, if there are findings of fact which are supported by the record, um, fraud courts have wide latitude to make these child support determinations, okay? And there's actually a quote in Williams, which I think is very interesting. Let's see if I can find it real quick. Um, so Williams, which is a 1964 decision of this court, says, in addition to the actual needs of the child, a father has a legal duty to give his children those advantages which are reasonable considering his financial condition and his position in society. Okay, so it's not just a quote-unquote actual needs determination, okay? And when you look at the language of the statute, the reasonable needs determination is influenced by all of these different factors of states, a custom standard of living, et cetera, which Mr. McGirt just reads right out of the statute, okay? Uh, just to serve, and you asked this question earlier about, well, is there evidence in the record to support a higher support award than what Mr. what Mr. McGirt contends is necessary? And there is evidence in the record, and this is uh, this is an uncontested fact. In fact, they're facts 19 through 23 or 24 of the order. And those facts are that the standard of living in the two different households are markedly different. And they're markedly less in my client's household. And that standard of living for the child is not only less now, but it's less than what she enjoyed at the time that the party separated. Just a servant, I saw you unmute, so I didn't know if you had a question, right? I, I, I will eventually, but I was going to let you get to the stopping point before I okay. ask. That's fine. Wait, look, I'm off being interrupted, so I don't have any problem at all. It hurt my feelings. So. Right. I mean, if I understand Mr. McGurk's argument correctly, he's got a few minutes to tell me that I don't. Uh, his his point, I think, is that given that the trial court found in finding of fact number 23 that's, that's reasonable needs were $7,926.23. That's all the need anybody can consider in uh, determining the amount of support that his client ought to have to pay. And even though there might have been evidence from which a higher figure could have been found, once that, once that finding was made, that's the end of the discussion about standards of living or anything else. I think that's his argument. If it's not, he can correct me. Uh, your argument seems to be that that number actually isn't the only figure for needs that can be considered. Tell me why I should accept your argument instead of his. Because the court made uncontested factual findings that the standard of living and the needs and expenses occurred by my client and her household were significantly less than the, what they were in John Bishop's household. They have, they have not contested one iota this idea that the that what my client pays for the child's housing clothing 
vacations, transportation, et cetera, is significantly less than what is paid for in Mr. Bishop's household. And in fact, if you accept Mr. McGirt's interpretation of the statute, here's what here's what happens, okay? My client, my client filed a very straightforward affidavit listing her actual expenses, which Judge Worley basically accepted in, in whole and accepted Mr. Bishop's affidavit as well. So if my client comes to court and says, well, I incur X for vacation expenses, but I should be permitted to incur Y, then Mr. McGirt's going to be back here complaining, that's a speculative expense, Judge. She's never, ever incurred that. How can she, I mean, there's no evidence of her incurring that. Um, the dissent, in fact, that the Court of Appeals decision got banana shape when Judge Worley simply made the observation that my client was driving a vehicle with 170,000 miles on it, and she's going to need a new one down the road. That was deemed speculation. So if that's deemed speculation, how can a client how can a party in my client's position ever make an evidentiary presentation to the trial court to show what her expenses ought to be? Well, and, 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 and again, I don't want to try to put words in Mr. McGirt's mouth, but I just to, to try to get y'all talking to each other, maybe through me. Uh, what I think he would say is that the trial court should have found a higher amount for reasonable needs based on the additional expenses. That's which was not done. I think that's his argument. Again, my question to you is, why should we not find that argument persuasive? Because the trial court also found that the expense amount incurred by my client was significantly less than what was paid for by Mr. Bishop and that my client would incur additional expenses if she had the ability to do so, but she didn't have the wherewithal to do so. Just to serve him, let me take Mr. McGirt's argument to his logical extreme, okay? Assume that meat means exactitude, okay? And assume this court issues a decision which says meat means exactitude. You got to have arithmetic certainty that the amount of child support meets the quote-unquote reasonable needs as found by the child court, by the trial court. So here's what's going to happen. It's not going to, I don't think it's going to affect this court this much, but Holy Pete, the, the Court of Appeals is going to have all kinds of appeals in the future saying, oh, you didn't meet this because you undercut me by $200 or you exceeded this by $400 or whatever it's going to do versus this court's longstanding precedence that trial courts are granted wide discretion in setting these awards. And, and look, if we're talking about math, I'm going to get to two types of math. Here's a simple math, okay? Because that's all I do. I mean, I went to law school to avoid numbers. That's all I deal with, okay? Here's a simple math. Jonathan, John, John Bishop was asked whether or not he thought any of his expenses in his household were excessive. $5,400 a month for the child. He said no. He, he, he refused any suggestion they were excessive. My client's expenses are $2,400 a month, okay? Well, why the big disparity? I mean, they both house the child, transport the child, have vacations with the child, do all these things with the child, and yet there's a $3,000 gap. The child support ordered $3,100 in child support to be paid. Math, okay? And this idea that my client's getting a bonus, and it's just so patently offensive that, quite frankly, it, it, it should be called out for what it is. Um, she cannot pay expenses at the level as Mr. Bishop. The trial court took uh, cognizance of the factors under the governing statute to, to include a custom standards of living, et cetera. But I want to go to one more type of math, which is I want to go to the calculation under the 2015 guidelines, which is attached as appendix one to um, my brief. Now, remember, again, the McGirt position is, is that the number determined by the child, by the trial court for reasonable needs establishes both the floor and the ceiling for what the child support award ought to be. Okay. And so I'm very confidently going to say he's wrong on that. And I'm going to demonstrate to you now why he's wrong on that. And I'm going to demonstrate this to you through application of the child support guidelines. So the child support guidelines say, that, and this is on page two of the guidelines, 
But the transport guidelines say, if I can find it real quick, that the schedule of basic child support may be of assistance to the trial court in determining a minimal level of child support. Okay. So, in other words, this case is clearly off the guidelines, but instead of trial court judges being being instructed not to even consider the guidelines, trial court judges are instructed that, look, in determining a minimal level of support, you can consider the guidelines. So, what happened? Well, I did a calculation under the 2015 guidelines. Let me see if I can put that up real quick. And again, I know this is math. I'm not a big math fan. I kind of fall in the Stephen Colbert category when it comes to that, but this is hopefully simple math. Okay. So what, what does this what does this calculation say? Well, in 2015, which was the optimal set of guidelines, the maximum amount of combined income that parties could have and be bound by the guidelines was $25,000 a month. So Mr. McGirt's already pointed out, and this is one of the few things where we agree on, was that under Judge Worley's order, his client's share of the total income was 85.6%, and my client's share of the total income was 14.4%. So what I did was I took that 20,000 figure, and I, I, I figured out 85.6% of 25,000, which is 21,004, and I figured out 14.4% of 25,000, which is $3,600. And then I did a calculation. I'm not gonna bore you with the calculation. Um, it, it accounted for 50-50 uh, custody, but you get down here at the bottom and the amount of child support under the 2015 guidelines, assuming the parties had the maximum amount of income that were permitted under the guidelines, um, was $1,130.54 a month. Now, to go to what Justice Earls was talking about, that's not far from the number that Mr. McGirt says this guy ought to be paying now, even though their income is significantly less than this guideline calculation. So if you take this calculation and then scale it up by 2.1% or, or multiply it by 2.1 times, which will then put you in the amount of combined income that the parties had under Judge Worley's order, then the, the minimum child support obligation that, that Mr. McGirt's client has under the guidelines without even calculating anything for expenses, the cost of standard of living, estates, anything, is, is, is $2,375 a month or $300 more a month than what Mr. McGirt's client was paying. So if if, a if, if, if the guidelines establish a minimal amount of support for trial courts and determining what to do in high-income cases, and if based on the math I just shared with you, which was just a guideline calculation, scale down, run the numbers, and then scale it back up based on the, if, if that number produces a number of $2,375 a month, which is $300 more than what my client was receiving under the 2012 order, how did we, before any consideration of any of the factors in the governing statute, then how did we get to a number or contention or argument that she ought to be getting $1,200 a month or, 40, or whatever, whatever the contention is, okay? I mean, math is math and the guidelines are clear that they establish a minimal amount of support. So, so I would suggest two things. I'm gonna suggest one, if the math on my child support calculation is correct, and it absolutely is correct, you can have one of your clerks run it down all day long. It's basic child support calculation, scale it down, calculate it, multiply it back by two, uh, two, 2.1 times. Um, then Mr. McGirt is, is, is flat out incorrect to say, oh, well, the number can only be this and can't exceed that. The guidelines give a number higher than what he wants to afford my client before the consideration of any of the factors. Um, if this case is about, he concedes, oh, well, it should have gone up, but it's, it's just a matter of degree, it went up too much. Well, holy moly. I mean, that goes back to all the um, standards that this court has given trial courts in setting child support awards. 
wide latitude, wide discretion. We don't micromanage trial courts when it comes to these calculations. We don't. And the the um, the transcript in this case clearly reflects that um, Judge Worley was was time she was having colloquies with the with the lawyers she was doing these alternate calculations for the guidelines and at one point she says you know i can run these numbers under this guideline and come up with a higher amount than what um mr bishop ought of what i'm ordering him to pay so um the final point i want to make is this and i touched upon this but i do not know how a client a party in my client's position meets the standards of Mr. McGirt's regime. Because again, if we went to court and said, oh, well, she doesn't have an automobile expense, but she's gonna have an automobile expense. And she can spend this much more money on vacations and she can spend this much more money on eating out or this much more money on this and the other, they're gonna be howling that those are all speculative expenses. So the alternative for my client is one of two regimes. The first regime would be to go ahead and get, I guess, a bunch of credit cards and run up a bunch of expenses in the year before the hearing on the child support to say, oh, well, I'm incurring, you know, comparable expenses to what John Bishop incurs in his household. And then and then the, the trial attorney is going to say, well, judge, they, they, they don't need to incur all those expenses. They're just elevating what their uh, obligation is. You need to scale that down. Or you can do what my client and I did, which was present an accurate affidavit of her expenses that was accepted by the trial court, and then the trial court making an adjustment in that number based upon the accustomed standard of living of the part standard of living of the parties and the child. That's what happened here. That's what I suggested in my opening to the trial court. That's what I suggested in my closing to the trial court. That's what I've suggested in every brief I filed with the appellate court, which is that we contended and the court found and the other side has not objected to this at all, that my client can't expense at the level that Mr. Bishop expenses at, and as such, the standard of living the child enjoys in my client's household is significantly less than either Mr. Bishop's household or what the parties enjoyed where they were married. So, um, unless you have any more questions, then since I was um, blatant enough to start with the talking heads, I'll go ahead and I'll conclude the talking heads and I'll say, your honors, keep it the same as it ever was, okay? You have longstanding precedents from this court that go back 60 and 70 years, which give trial courts wide discretion. It's very easy to justify the amount of support that Judge Worley ordered in this case. And I think under this court's precedents, you're obligated to affirm that award just like the Court of Appeals did. Thank you very much. Thank you, counsel rebuttal. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, just a couple of points. Uh, one, Mr. Harrell talked about the Williams case as I did. The Williams case, again, please do not be confused by the misdirection there. The distinction in Williams is between bare necessities, necessaries, actual necessities versus reasonable needs. Those are completely different concepts. What we're talking about here is reasonable needs. Um, and Pardon me for taking the trial court. Literally, the literal finding of fact is the, the court has determined the child's total reasonable needs. That is a term of art. That is what the, the trial court found. That's what we're working with. We're not working with something over and above some bare necessities. We're working with what the trial court actually found in its order, that those are the reasonable needs. There are no other needs to be talked about once the trial court has determined what the reasonable needs are. I was um, confused by Mr. Harrell's use of the child support guidelines. Obviously, they are perhaps suggestive of something. You have to be very careful with how the child support guidelines work because they refer not only to the table there, there is a, on worksheet B, there is a 1.5 multiplier applied on worksheet B, and you have to take that into account. And there, there's also a reference to a table of child support, uh, basic child support obligations that are that are not scalable in the way that Mr. Harrell is trying to suggest that they are. They're not directly scalable. They go up in increments that are not 
uh, directly proportional to the increase in income. So that the, there, the calculation is a little bit skewed there, but even taking it at face value, what I understood Mr. Harold to say was doing it by whatever bamboozly method he came up with, the top number he came up with was $2,375 a month, which is less than what the trial court ordered in this case. Again, I remind the court that the order is for $3,289 per month, which is way more than $2,375 a month, even using the um, skewed uh, hypothetical child, custom, child support guideline calculation Mr. Harrell was suggesting. Um, as to this uh, danger Mr. Harrell hypothesizes about having to show speculative expenses and so forth, I suppose that's a possibility, but again, that's all to be hashed out in the trial court. The trial court is the finder of fact, and the burden of proof is on the party attempting to show that those expenses are there. The trial court is entirely able to look at, uh, there's plenty of case law talking about looking at a financial affidavit. The trial court can look at the affidavit and say, well, you spent uh, $500 a month for eating out. You spent $300 a week for groceries or whatever. And the trial court can say, well, that seems too high or that seems too low. The court could go either way. And the standard of review for that in the appellate division has always been, that's fine. Whatever you, well, almost, it's abusive discretion, but I can't remember when I've seen the court of appeals or this court go back and say, boy, you totally undercut those expenses way too much, or you totally inflated those expenses way too much. Um, that is a matter for the trial court uh, to determine, and I'm not I'm not worried about that at all. Um, if if Ms. Bishop wants to come back and run up credit cards in order to boost her expenses, that's going to be a matter of her credibility in terms of what the expenses are. So I appreciate the court's time, and uh, that's pretty much my argument. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Madam Clark. Oh, yes, oh, yes, oh, yes. The Supreme Court of North Carolina will be in recess until 930 tomorrow morning. God save the state and this honorable court.